Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Jamie Miller, PhD and founder of Biomimicry Frontiers and Biomimicry Commons. We talk about what is biomimicry, um, the founder and their definition, uh, how we can continue to look to nature, learn, and create new innovative systems, um, and what the adaptive cycle looks like. And we also dive into death, um, his work with Indigenous people in Canada, and what he's been able to learn from them, and the vision for his course, and what he's hoping to achieve in his work. I ask him a bunch of questions, some of them he has good answers for. Some of them are more of a thought experiment, but it was a really fun conversation um, exploring the sort of intersection between creativity, nature, uh, and where we have been going and where the evolution can possibly go. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism in this, this area, and it's up to each one of us to look inside and look outside and make some choices that are for the best for our planet and for ourselves and for the future. And uh, really was fun to speak with Jamie and look forward to his course, which he shares information about in the episode too. Thank you. All right. So Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share uh, what you've been up to and what you're doing on and a little bit of your vision for the future. Uh, Definitely really appreciate it and was stoked to connect with you recently on this. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, it'd be great, I think, to start off with a little bit to just give us a little bit of an overview on what biomimicry is and sort of how you came to commit so much of your sort of time and energy and attention to it um, through your schooling process and um, with the sort of lens of engineering that you've um, kind of come to it with. Yeah, I'll start um, with the definition. So uh, biomimicry is a uh, a term that was coined by a woman named Janine Benyus, and she says that it's the conscious emulation of nature's genius. From my perspective, it's um, it's really a, a lens that you can put on or that you can adopt to see that that genius of nature, that nature's been doing design for billions of years, that nature's been creating resilient and sustainable communities for billions of years, that it manufactures more sustainably with benign chemistry and benign manufacturing and um, it does all of these things on the same context, on the same planet as us, but in such different and really inspiring ways. So biomimicry to me is about really adopting that lens and starting to look at the natural world through it so that you can actually harness some of those ideas and, and apply them to some of the struggles that we're having. So that's that's biomimicry um, as it's defined. And I, I think it's also important just to recognize that um, as a term, it's new, but as a concept, it's it's age-old. Um, I know Leonardo da Vinci often looked to nature for inspiration. Antonio Gaudi in Barcelona built his church based on the principles of biomimicry. And even Indigenous people, um, like in, in Canada up here, they 
copied Arctic hare feet to make snowshoes or copied the way that polar bears made dens um, as inspiration for igloos. So it's a, it's a very old concept, but a new idea that I think is gaining steam because of some of the challenges that we're having in terms of our sustainability, but also in terms of how disconnected we are from the natural world and, and how we collectively view the value of nature as being a resource to really ex- extract and take from. So that's generally what biomimicry is about. I mean, even just on a general, like very sort of vague sense, like if I look at a plane in the sky, it's got two wings and a tail, you know, even the words are like exactly what you would get from looking at a bird. And obviously the form is very much there. And then the fact that like you have to put fuel into it and then waste comes out of it, you know, that's how most living creatures work. Like, would you put that sort of thing into the category of biomimicry in a sense? Yeah. Yeah. You can define biomimicry in three levels as well. And you kind of touched on it there. You can emulate nature's form. So copying the shapes. And even when you see those little tips on the edge of the the wings, Mm -hmm. that was more recently inspired by um, eagle and uh, larger prey um, uh, feathers. At the end, you'll notice their tips kind of flip up. But you can also emulate nature's processes and then nature's systems. So what's different about a plane and a bird is um, the form may look the same, but the process for how that that structure was built is totally different. And then the waste products are totally different. There's no real such thing as waste in nature in the sense that everything can be reused and recycled quite easily, whereas the fuel and the things that we use um, have byproducts that are really difficult to, to decompose or, or to recycle or to reuse. Um, so... The cool thing about biomimicry is the shape, copying shapes in nature is really sexy. Like you can see that copying the hooks of a, a barbule, this, or sorry, the barbule of a, of a burr that sticks to your shirt when you're walking through the forest to make Velcro. Like you can see that translation between the shape of the, the burr and the, the Velcro. But as you start to emulate the processes and the systems and how, you know, organisms interact with the rest of the system, that's when you get to the sustainable stuff and the really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So what sort of first captured your attention with this? Um, you know, I don't know if it was before you went into university and started studying or if it was parallel. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit about your sort of venture into this realm. Yeah, I, yeah. I think um, I've always been interested in nature. Um, I've also always been interested in, in the spirit of nature. Um, but it was in university when I was studying environmental enge- or civil engineering and um the whole time I had this feeling like there had to be a different way of doing things. We were taught how to design roads, build bridges and treat water sewage and all this stuff. And um, in a third year elective that I took called math and poetry, the professor walked us through math theorems. And one of them was the Fibonacci sequence, which is the sequence of numbers that when we played with it in certain geometries, we saw that we could find this spiral and he had us, really look at that spiral and see where else we've seen it. And so it's the same spiral that you see in a pine cone or in the packaging of sunflower seeds, or even when you pull the plug in your bathtub, that vortex is following that same spiral. So at that time, I think this, you know, my, my paradigm was fundamentally shifted from this belief that we were the engineers to this idea that nature could teach us how to engineer, that nature was using math and science to, come up with incredible packaging strategies, for example, or um, techniques for design. So that was the catalyst for my my journey. And that was back in 2004. 
And then from there, it was just nonstop. You know, I reached out um, and took a course with Janine Benyus, the woman who wrote the book Biomimicry and worked with her group for a few years and couldn't stop thinking about it. I worked in the government for a bit and just thought about biomimicry and eventually did a PhD in it um, at a systems level. Um, and then started the company Biomimicry Frontiers with the hopes of really applying these theories and seeing how we can make, you know, make biomimicry more practical. Practical. So when you decided to do your PhD in it and were sort of studying it, how sort of off track is that from generally what's going on? Like, was that a hard PhD to do? Were people generally like embracing that or was it a little bit sort of obscure? It was a bit obscure. Um, I mean, the very fact that I had to kind of create my own PhD program and and research was um, evidence of that. Like I couldn't really find many profs doing biomimicry as their, their focus, but I was lucky to get a couple of profs that were really interested and wanted to bring it in into their work. So um, it's still relatively kind of vague, but we are seeing more programs pop up, more professors really committing to it um, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Something kind of struck me that I've thought about recently that you just said about, you know, us as human beings thinking that we're the master engineers of what's going on around us, but you only have to look at the complexity of like the human brain and the human body and that we exist here and like are such insanely complex creatures uh, on so many levels that we can only even comprehend a small percentage of it. And yet we all, like I would say the majority of the feeling is that we are these like master engineers that are in control of everything that's going on. But it doesn't, you don't have to look far to realize like our capacity to create is just a fraction of what nature is able to do. Yeah. I think you, you said it really beautifully. I think um, how I've started to see biomimicry and, and nature specifically is that it's reflecting a complexity that I think intimidates our brain. I know brain, our brains love to be hyper-efficient and so we'll categorize and make assumptions and I think when we're in nature, it's this complexity that we can't really grasp. And it's almost like a reflection of our own complexity. And so it's easier and safer and more predictable if we engineer it and engineer ourselves out of it so that, you know, these four walls around me are, they're going to stay up and that can take my mind, the attention from my mind away and put it to something else. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's beautiful complexity out there. So you know, that is that sort of intimidation, this almost like unconscious intimidation by that complexity that you think is like becoming ingrained in like our education systems and our general upbringing, because we don't often talk about that. You know, there's no class where you, we just like are in awe of the magic of what's going on without us doing anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do think so. Um, I think we're, our brains are somewhat programmed, like I said, to, to make meaning of things and, and help us understand and comprehend, like cognitively our brains can't handle complexity. And so we like to simplify. Um, And I think that's one of the downfalls is, is especially as we get older, we, we get rooted in our assumptions. We start to find evidence Mm -hmm. and then really believe them. But as, as kids, I mean, I've got a one-year-old and I'm watching him kind of discover this place. And it's um, a good reminder that we all have the capacity to really open up and, and, and come with fresh eyes and, and a fresh mindset. Um, and that's, you know, 
going back to biomimicry, I'm noticing that that's probably the hardest part about applying biomimicry is, is that it challenges, you know, a, a, a social status quo. Um, and it's tough for people to imagine something different um, uh, in that way. Yeah, I guess we've just become so conditioned to look at the world a certain way that it's a lot of unlearning to yeah. sort of be able to open up our awareness to more of that childlike openness and approach it in that way and see what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I actually should have looked this up, but I recently was watching this film or video and the guy doing the video um, presented the definition from like the Oxford Dictionary of Nature. And it was oh, yeah. like everything that's going on naturally in the world as opposed to human beings and humans creations. And it was like so crazy that it was like nature was opposed to humans. Mm. And like that sort of separation, I guess, has, you know, become pretty evident in terms of the way that we are creating technology and things like that. How much of sort of the biomimicry is not only approaching what we create and how we create it, but also reintegrating ourselves into the natural world. Yeah. Um, that's really the purpose of our company. Um, what we've noticed is that one of the biggest, um, biggest impacts we've had in terms of climate change is just trying to separate ourselves from the natural world and, and design ourselves outside of it. And that what I call a glaring contrast has so many ramifications and so much, um, you know, from a psychological level to a physical level, like we, we, we need more nature. Nature does a lot of the, the hard heavy lifting for us in, in terms of keeping this planet stable. Um, so we use biomimicry as kind of a doorway to get people to see the value of nature in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just lumber for, for uh, manufacturing and um, construction, but to see that an intact ecosystem could teach you about community resilience. It could teach you about manufacturing or politics or uh, economics um, so our purpose is to reintegrate the built and natural environments to bring them back in, whether that be, you know, green roofs, I don't care. Um, but we're using biomimetic mindsets and principles to change your condo code, um, or your condo development. Um, we're really passionate about reintegrating those, those two things. Cause we see a lot of benefits, not just, um, mitigating climate change, but the biophilic principles, like our natural innate connection to nature and, and how that improves mental health and um, work productivity. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of research that shows the benefits of, of nature being in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the sort of metaphors of it for myself that I've sort of become to understand more deeply and has contributed to me being more sensitive to like the planet, you know, in a sense is like we as individuals, you know, we can eat crazy amounts of junk food and drink alcohol and smoke weed and and stay up all night long and just stress our systems like to the max and yet it's so resilient like the ability for the natural body to find some level of homeostasis in that Mm -hmm. chaos and stress is just it's really unbelievable but if we take care of it it can flourish so much better and perform so much better. And it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, we are stressing our planet to the max and its mm-hmm. ability to sort of maintain some level of like middle ground is really unbelievable considering mm-hmm. the stress we put on it. But 
like you said, if we embrace it and nourish its natural sort of um, way of being, then it can teach us so much more. It can give us so much more. Yeah. And I, I just, love that. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say to like, you know, for me, it took that sort of individual realization to sort of understand the the more holistic, like planet-wide sort of impact of that. And I wonder if that sort of is a path you find where you kind of have to reach the individual before you can sort of reach a larger group or bring the bigger concepts in. Yeah. I th- yeah. I think that's a great point. One of the things we say a lot is think naturally, build naturally. And so a big part of our, our course that we're now um, providing is to help people adopt that mindset to really get into their own psyche and understand their own barriers and boundaries within a biomimetic frame framework. Um, and to, yeah, understand the complexity and understand nature at this deeper level. And once you're thinking in that way, kind of your whole lens and your whole experience changes. And um, I think it, it's, you know, it's really well said um, how you put it. I love the idea that, um, you know, nature, using that metaphor of nature, kind of like our bodies, like if we support it and, and give it nourishment, um, it's like a fine-tuned machine. It'll work really, really, really well and do incredible things for you. Um, you can still push it and abuse it, but, um, you know, you're just missing out on that potential. And, and that's the thing, like nature is just constantly aiming to get back in, into equilibrium. Like if you, as a good example, is like if we all left the cities, nature would dissipate that gradient between the, the built environment and natural environment. It wants to go back to equilibrium. It wants to be, you know, avoiding these gradients or dissipating these gradients. And so, we put a lot of energy into stopping that from that natural process from happening. And so we do put a lot of abuse on nature and and try to control it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a big part of why we do what we do. We want to recreate that harmony um, between built and natural environments. And then, like you said, it all starts with, you know, that internal mindset, um, that inner biomimicry, we call it. So maybe you can kind of share a little bit more about the company that you've started um, biomimicry frontiers and what sort of vision and goal for the, for the company is. Yeah, we're a relatively young company. We started four years ago, um, coming up to four years. And the initial goal was to apply biomimicry to see it, um, applied more because in the amount of times, um, well, whenever I talk about it, I typically get the same response that people are quite inspired and it makes a lot of sense to them. Like, Oh yeah, of course, nature does have some good ideas we could learn from. Then the inevitable next question is usually, how do we do it? And that's where there seems to be a downfall. If you look at biomimicry online, you could name the same 12 examples in every presentation. So mm. um, I'm shocked that, you know, for such a powerful idea, it has so little traction and application. And a lot of people don't even know the term. So my company was inspired by that. It's like, how do we apply it? How do we make some interesting stories? And through just you know, iterations and, and exploration where we're landing now is that we're really focused on um, like architecture and master planning and reintegrating natural and built environments. So we do uh, consulting um, like for large scale master plans around the world. You know, we're working on a project here in Guelph, building a circular food economy. So redefining the food system in an urban and rural environment, but we're focusing on the urban um, we do do some technology integration. Like we've got these impellers, actually these guys, 
that um, shaped like a seashell. It's actually the Fibonacci spiral that we've put into irrigation tanks in actual cannabis facilities and, and uh, organic farm um, companies. And yeah, there's multiple ways we've been trying to apply it. Um, and that's been the main focus is like, we want to see it applied and we want to uh, do this all in the hopes of mitigating climate change, reintegrating the natural and built environments. Um, and then the other thing that we've just launched um, is this other arm or another branch of the company, which is the biomimicry commons. Um, because what we found is a lot of people are interested in what we do and interested in biomimicry and want to know how to apply it. So we've built a platform and a course starting with a course to teach you how to bring it into your own personal and professional lives. So teach you the mindset and the methods and the tools for how to practically apply biomimicry, just based on what we've learned in the last four years. And the goal of the commons is to really inspire this groundswell of, of innovators and creators and individuals who, who apply biomimicry and, and start to really spread um, that concept and that philosophy. And do you see people so far taking that knowledge um, into all sorts of different sectors? Yeah, this first cohort, we had um, students, uh, we had artists, we had a banker, we had a bunch of landscape architects, a few engineers, um, uh, architects. Yeah, we had a, quite a diversity of people, business owners, CEOs of environmental consultancies. And it was great to see kind of who was, who was interested and who was, um, who was coming around because um, the one thing about biomimicry is it truly can apply to anything. I, I do believe that the only limitation is just how creative you are in, in abstracting ideas from nature and then um, creatively applying them to your profession. But that's kind of what the course in the commons is about is to help you see how it can apply to you. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Um, and I'm definitely curious myself about the course. I wonder in terms of, you know, abstracting those ideas and insights from nature, what are some ways that we can sort of do that as individuals? Is it just going hiking and being a little bit more aware and observational or, or, you know, there are simple tools that we can sort of look at that we might be missing? Yeah, that's a great question. There's generally two ways you can look at that is one is you can take biology and be inspired to create mm. a design. So that's just really spending time with an organism. Um, I just watched the octopus teacher yesterday oh, yeah. on Netflix and, um, <laughs> You know, there's so much you can learn when you spend time with one thing and you spend a lot of time. And that's how Velker was inspired. You know, George DeMaestro, the engineer, was just so fed up with these birds. He became semi-obsessed and took them under a microscope and just realized it's an incredible adhesive strategy. Um, so that's one way, biology to design. The other way is just the inverse, is you could take a design challenge to the natural world. And it could be anything, but the key is that you just identify the function you want to achieve. And you ask simply, how would nature do that? And then you could start to explore the natural world. So it might be using the Velcro. If you wanted to make a new adhesive, your function is like ad adhering or adhesive. And you say, how does nature adhere? And then you could all of a sudden open up the textbook of you've got blue mussels, you've got spiders, you've got snails, you've got um, burrs. Um, you can see that nature is doing adhesion really, really well. And then you can start to fully, slowly unpack. Um, how to do that. And, and then in our course, we really teach you how to take it from just a concept to an actual prototype or an idea that you can start to play with. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. There's that sort of two sort of approaches there. You mentioned um, like climate change as being sort of one of the biggest sort of priorities or issues to be tackling with 
this sort of approach. And um, I thought I read, I think I read like a headline recently that was saying like the Conservative Party in Canada did, recently voted to like not recognize some of the climate change that's going on, if not all of it. And, um, you know, as a way to not take action towards it. And it's obviously been super controversial for years all around the world. And I wonder on like, I'm sure there's multiple layers to that. And maybe you can sort of describe from your perspective, what some of the biggest challenges are, but I almost wonder at this point, like if it needs a new name, because it seems like if you just talk about the objective impact of human beings on nature, there can't be any argument that it's like quite destructive. (laughs) And, but when it comes to climate change, it becomes a whole sort of different political thing. And then, you know, there's a lot of people making a lot of money from the destructive impact that we're making on nature as well. And, they're fighting tooth and nail to keep that ability, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So what do you see in terms of the biggest challenges for climate change in terms of like philosophy, politics, and sort of just our experience right now in, in the world? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the way I see it is that we've inherited, like we've come into a system. Like I didn't, I didn't build this system. It's been building for hundreds of years and, and I've, I've inherited it. And one of those systems is a capitalist system and I'm a part of it you know? Um, so I, I can't bash it. Um, and I don't think, you know, that these things are necessarily wrong. And instead I see them as perhaps outdated and with climate change, I think what's, you know, one way of looking at it is that a lot of people depend on a certain way of doing things and to try to push them to a totally different way of thinking or doing is, uh, it's it's fiercely resisted. And this is just like, you know, systems thinking. People don't want a so, social paradigm shift because what that means is uncertainty. It means disruption. It means chaos. And like I said at the beginning, our brains don't like that. They, they we, we like to keep things simple. And if simple means status quo, then let's stay status quo. So it, I don't think it's, you know, necessarily, um, there's no right or wrong um, in a sense, but um, I think there are outdated systems that need evolution. And, and one of the biggest barriers is helping people to evolve. And, and that's why I use biomimicry is because it's a powerful tool to seeing um, how we could evolve and do it in a way that can make a lot of money. Like Velcro is a pretty successful company um, in a capitalist system, um, you know, but maybe these systems could, could release and reorganize at smaller scales instead of saying, you know, we've got to change the whole car automotive petrochemical industries it's like wow that's you're talking about billions of people um you know and lots of money and people aren't going to just switch from that so how do we release these systems at small scale and and quite rapidly because of the climate change issue is showing that it's it's coming on pretty quick so we've got to move quickly Mm -hmm. um so that's why we're so passionate about our company and what we're up to and biomimicry in general is that it's a powerful tool and in fact the research that I did in my PhD was about learning from nature, how to evolve a rooted system. How does nature transform? How does it stay relevant? Um, and that's where I learned about this model called the adaptive cycle, which teaches you that nature is constantly changing from states of conservation to release, to reorganization, to exploitation. And it's doing that at multiple scales. And I think mm-hmm. what I learned was the big difference between us and nature in that 
regard is that we love to stay in conservation. Like we love to keep things the same. Mm -hmm. And we have a special talent in that we can harness energy to force systems to stay the same. Like we can put energy and materials and money into systems to keep them static when the environment around it is changing pretty dramatically. And that's when, you know, if, if you become disconnected with that environment, that's when that's when bad things happen, like shifts happen uncontrollably and they happen at large scale. And, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're kind of seeing that now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nature's way of that, doing that process is so much more patient than, yeah. than we are. And increasingly so, I feel like, and I find that in my, my own life, like if I want something to change, mm. you know, I want it to change by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want something to happen really fast. Yeah. But, you know, I love the sort of thinking around like a tree, like it can only grow as high as its roots will allow, you know, something as simple as that mm -hmm. is such a like easier reminder to be like, Oh yeah. Like, otherwise you're just going to fall over, you know, and yeah. die and you're going to, you know, it's not going to go well, <laughs> Yeah, but we are, you know, hell bent on growing as fast as possible. Who cares about the roots and right. who cares about all the other trees and plants and animals <laughs> like in the vicinity of the tree. Um, but yeah, I think like, it's like we've been saying, it's the mindset change. That's just like so drastic. Mm -hmm. And um, even like, I find, I guess what's overwhelming is how fast we're still growing and evolving, but not yeah. in the right way or in, right. A, or in a potentially dangerous way. Like if you look at our sort of couple thousand years of modern civilization, you know, from agriculture to, and growing crops and storing rice to, you know, where we are now in terms of the, that capitalistic sort of culture and that growth, like th there was a really slow period of time where that was evolving. And now mm -hmm. it's like, hyperspeed in a sense and it feels like yes we are hanging on to this model that's out of date and it needs to evolve and change but i don't know like does it just go into total chaos or is like you mentioned the in that video that you um shared which we'll share a link to you know is there a multi-layered evolution that's gonna sort of lead us to a new model i hope so <laughs> <laughs> i'm banking on the small scale releases and um because otherwise it is, it's a massive collapse. That's just, it's just natural. And there's examples of that in civilizations, but you know, mm -hmm. a tree will drop its leaves, you know, every fall so that the new leaves can come back a little bit more attuned, a little bit more capable to its environment. And that small release makes sure that it's relevant, that it fits and that it's, you know, the best it can be. But when we conserve systems, like I said, we're avoiding those small releases. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the bad part is if we can't release. And, and like you said, my, my philosophy is like, we've got to release our thinking first before we start to release our actions. Um, though, the one thing I was going to say though, is, um, oh, actually I've, I've forgotten that thought anyways. Yeah. You released it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting metaphor when you talk about the, like a tree, it's got to release its leaves and then maybe it'll like drop a couple of branches as it gets taller. And, you know, for us, you know, we have to change our thoughts before mm -hmm. our, our sort of words and then our actions. And it's that sort of like tiered sort of mm -hmm. release and evolution. But yeah, it starts with the mind, but the mind can really like be a steel clamp in terms of hanging on to things and not being able to bend and, um, you know, that's such an issue, I think, with what we see going on in the world across how we interact with nature, how we interact with different races and sexes mm -hmm. and, 
cultures and religions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I would love to see that being taught more. It's just more neuroplasticity, more Mm -hmm. flexibility, more openness and curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think when we start to lock in and believe certain things as truths, you know, we can collect evidence and prove that it's true, but you know, some things aren't true and, and, you know, things like that, these ideas that have been ingrained in us, um, that should be maybe released or is seen as more flexible. I, I totally agree. I think that that's a powerful, powerful way of, of being. Yeah. I think something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the idea of truth and like hmm. objective to truth versus a subjective truth. And I wonder, do you think like as individuals, is there anything that can really be that objectively true or is all the experience in our life, it's going to put some sort of tint or bias on it to some degree? It's a good question. I mean, I'm not a, a psychologist, but personally, I think um, it feels like everything has a bit of malleability. Like you can, like, I was going to even say death, like the fact that we're all going to die, that seems like a truth, but then I've never died in this life. So I don't know what death, <laughs> like what happens afterwards. So yeah. I don't know, like maybe there's another life after that. Anyways. Yeah. It's an interesting, like mental exercise, uh, but um, truth. Yeah. I, I can't, think of of too many um out there um so one thing you know when we chatted earlier you mentioned that as you've been diving into this work and started the course and and teaching people you've tapped into this sort of indigenous people uh where you live and sort of the wisdom that they bring and obviously there's a lot of more analog nature-based sort of technologies and and ways of being that that they've carried on for a long, long time and so much we can learn from. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. share a little bit about that experience from from your side and what you've learned there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up uh, in a very small town and there's 2,000 of us um, and it bordered on a, a reservation up here in Canada. It's Canada's biggest reservation um, in terms of population. And um, I had an interesting upbringing because it's a lot. Of, I'm learning how contentious that was and how much land we've essentially stolen from them, even though there's a treaty that says they get this many miles off of this Grand mm-hmm. River. Um, so I had a certain interpretation of Indigenous people growing up. Um, and then when I started studying engineering and water, particularly, and, and in, engaging with more Indigenous communities, I really learned the power of, of their perspective. And once I learned about biomimicry, it was like a it's almost like my white man ways of being like reconnected to the power of nature and um, reconnected to, you know, what nature could be. And in fact, we've done, you know, quite a bit of work with indigenous people and and there's an elder on our board who um, I've been lucky enough to be a part of her community and and work in ceremony with. And um, uh, when I told her what we what I do, I told her about biomimicry. She said, well, Jamie, we've been doing biomimicry for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a great kind of representation of how far off, you know, me as a settler and and my ancestors are from the way that people have been doing it on this, you know, what they call Turtle Island for so long. And um, it really is powerful to see their lens. Well, like to, you know, learn more about their, their lens of nature and, to integrate that into biomimicry because I think there's there are parallels. I can't say that they're the same, but man, you know, learning from from indigenous people and how to interact and view nature is uh, is pretty powerful. Um, and I think it has a lot of, of potential in pairing with biomimicry. 
Yeah, I would imagine so. And I think like you like you mentioned, they've been doing it for so long in their sort of own ways. But one of the things that stands out the most to me, I guess, is just their level of respect for nature, you know, like having songs and prayers for the different mm. animals, you know, giving thanks to an animal or a plant, like if you're eating it and sort of that it mm. gave its life to nourish you and your family and, um, you know, the four elements even, you know, praying to different directions to, you know, being grateful for the wind, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. that are, we just take so for granted, but they're just these magical forces that sustain our lives, even though we're totally blind to it and they keep doing it, you know, like nature keeps yeah. giving us life, even though we're just turning up, turning our back on it in many ways. Isn't that crazy? I, I sometimes when I really, meditate on that like how much it's like it's like um I, I imagine a forest i think a lot of forests as my metaphor and those trees just stand there and give and give and give and i know like i'm thinking of that giving tree um storybook children's book but how much they give and how you know blind we are to that and um you know something i've put into my own practice is um based on Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's an author, her philosophy is, is really centered around reciprocity and just acknowledging, like what you said, how much nature gives to us and, and in an, our own way, try to give back. So it's whether, you know, you're offering tobacco or you're just giving thanks or you're acknowledging the sacrifice a tree gives in order to have a fire to keep you warm or to cook your food. Um, yeah, there's some real power in, in having a sense of reciprocity and recognizing that nature's doing way, way more for us than we're doing for it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, like the, the indigenous people, you know, have, have so much of this wisdom and have been doing this. They've stayed connected to nature in a way. Um, maybe not holistically, but a lot of their like cultures have anyways. And you know, I grew up in, in Victoria and lived in Vancouver and there's, you know, a bunch of reservations around there, but growing up, it was like a very, you know, looked down upon community. There was not Mm -hmm. that sort of respect and understanding of what they have been doing. You know, there's some of their arts in the museums and things like that, but there was a huge sort of disconnect culturally, um, and not in a very positive way. And now that I've gotten older, it's like, oh, wow, you know, like they have so much to offer. And we've mm-hmm. like forced out a lot of that from their cultures over the years. And it just feels like, you know, even today when we're talking about a lot of the sort of racial issues going on and, you know, people in in different cities are like, oh, immigrants are coming here. And it's like, mm-hmm. we're immigrants, you know, we came here <laughs> and just like yeah. murdered everyone. <laughs> Yeah. And took their <laughs> land. Like, and now we yeah. think we can judge like that other people just want to come here so they can make like another $5 an hour, you know, like it's crazy. Yeah. But there, again, it's like we as humans just have this crazy lack of awareness and perspective um, within our own race, within our own species that I feel like, you know, to understand and respect the sort of indigenous wisdoms. First, we have to understand and respect them as human beings absolutely yeah i think you yeah i think you're right on and it kind of brings me back to that point about the fear of the unknown and how that's such an ingrained part of our you know our 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 psyche and when things are different things are you know foreign they're they're 
kind of intimidating. So I, I think you're absolutely correct. And, and it's interesting. Likewise, you know, I had a certain interpretation of indigenous people, but I realized that that's just incredible social, um, like what's that called? Not pressure, but it's almost like just perpetuating that genocide, like that, that cultural genocide that we're trying to wean that culture out of this place because it's different because it's foreign. You know, we call them savages and in fact, they were living on this planet and we wouldn't be here without them um, in terms of living in North America. So, yeah, it's very interesting to think about um, and how much we try to push them aside and, and see them as a negative, you know, and it's just like ingrained in us. I think that's a part of our cultural kind of biasy. And once you, you know, once you release that and, and really spend time and, and hear about their, what they've gone through. I mean, a quick, a quick story. I remember one elder at a sunrise ceremony. Um, I we're sitting in in a circle, just me and him were sitting in this ceremony. And I remember kind of confronting him about my white man guilt. Like Mm -hmm. I felt guilty for what my ancestors and, you know, my people have done. And he just like, (laughs) he has a good sense of humor, but he looked at me and he's like, Jamie, this isn't about you. This is about, you need to get off your own guilt and and start, you know, being an ally and being a contributor like this. And I just thought that was a great humbling experience for me. It's like, I'm making their plight about me. um, (laughs) When in fact, we just, we need to be working on, on just, you know, shifting the cultural norms and and the culture perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's pretty natural for each of us to, you know, exist as the center of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. majority right. of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. Well, I think like, the white man guilt is, I mean, it's real, you know, we're two white guys sitting yeah. here talking about this right now. And I think that mm-hmm. even the idea of like, okay, yes, now we are connected and understand and respect the wisdom of, of this culture that came before us and we can embrace it. But then there's also a tricky line of like, you know, appropriation and like, you right. know, going and even like sitting in a sweat lodge or doing a pipe ceremony and then sharing that with somebody else, like it's very easy to be judged. And then, you know, why am I doing this? And, um, so that's like a fine line as well. It's, is, you know, participating and sharing and integrating that into our lives in a, in an authentic way and in a way that's respectful. Um, but it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky line. It feels like, but then maybe, you know, if we're following our hearts on that path, you know, it's not about us and it's about something greater and we just need to let that go too. Yeah. I think it, one thing an elder told my wife works a lot with um, her company works with indigenous people up in Canada. And one elder told her, you know, even giving a land acknowledgement before an event, for example, he says, the way I see, the way I see it is like, you've just stolen my car and now you you're driving by in my car and giving me the finger, the finger. It's like, it's a nice gesture, but you're still on stolen land kind of thing. And, yeah. and it makes it tough. It, like, I totally agree. It's tough. Like, how do you move forward? And, and something Robin Wall Kimmer said um, to this question exactly was that it's a, it's again about reciprocity. It's like when you're given a teaching, a teaching um, to acknowledge that that teaching came from somewhere And so when you, you know, when you share it, like, it's not like she's saying to avoid the cultural appropriation is to share with almost like a reference of where it came from Mm -hmm. and the person um, so that you can honor the lineage of that teaching and you can honor that teaching. And it comes 
not from you then it's more passing through you in an effort to create a social a social shift so i really appreciated that response from her because it helps me when i share to always you know be grateful for where it came from and to acknowledge where it came from and recognize that uh this isn't my teaching um i'm i'm not trying to convince you that i know how to live on this land mm-hmm. um so that's been helpful for me yeah well i think that's a good lesson like holistically as well, you know, like totally not many of us are coming up with a completely novel idea. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) And even if we are in some ways, it's maybe not coming from us anyways. (laughs) Yeah. We are these sort of channels or like conductors of consciousness, I think. And it's, you know, things are flowing through and, and we're filtering them as best as we can. But, you know, but again, it's like the idea that we want to, like hang on to our outdated mm-hmm. systems. We want to hang on to that's my idea. I need credit yeah. for it. I need to get paid for it. I need to get followers <laughs> right. for it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I'm only just connecting this now, but like I've had so many ideas in the creative field and sometimes they don't happen or sometimes I'll pitch them to a brand and then they do them without me. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little part of my ego that's like, Oh, brutal. But I'm also <laughs> like, well, I would rather it happen somehow then it not happened yeah. at all you know if i think it's a good yeah. idea but i don't think that's really like generally the norm yeah no i th- i think you're right there's a i think there's a great video called um everything's a remix it's a quick little video that talks about yeah. that in the history of rap and how you know uh, everything's been been kind of stolen and i think that's what i love about biomimicry is that it's blatantly um stealing but you you're you're consciously taking it from nature and then therefore like sharing that that was a natural idea that this wasn't my idea that this mm-hmm. was a you know the adaptive cycle and how to deal with uncertainty and how to evolve the systems it wasn't from me it's from some guy who studied nature um so uh yeah it, it is interesting yeah and so on the topic of of sharing you know you've obviously been studying and working and um and sharing in some ways but I guess more recently with starting this course, you're really taking on more of a teacher mentor um, sharing role. And, and how has that sort of transition in your career been? It feels pretty natural not to use that pun, mm-hmm. but it's like, it feels like that's what I, I love to do. And in fact, I used to teach biomimicry at a design university here in, in Canada, OCAD university, but I, I love seeing people connect with what, they're a natural at like what they're inspired by and then connect that to, um, you know, to biomimicry and biomimicry methodology to come up with their own business or to integrate it into their business that they're working on or working in. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about working with people and seeing them lit up, seeing them inspired and seeing them contributing to shifting the system. If that's what they, they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess that makes it, makes it easy then and probably pretty fulfilling to see that unfold. Yeah, for sure. And and I know that I'm super clear that this is a movement that's not going to happen with a couple individuals, that it is a groundswell that, you know, we need as many people looking through uh, the lens of biomimicry and looking at the world through that lens. So I don't care, you know, like, yeah, I, I just think that it's important that as many people are at least aware of this concept. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people are probably aware of it without knowing this sort of term and the origins. Right. right. Um, 
And from my perspective, it feels like there is a groundswell. It feels like there's more awareness. It feels like there is a sort of rising consciousness of understanding the connection and and the magic of sort of the universe, let alone sort of our Mm -hmm. planet and solar system. And I guess for me personally, some of that has come through working with plant medicines and Mm. that comes through like indigenous traditions and a lot of their sort of processes of, of prayer and giving thanks and respect. And, um, and I know other people that I sort of follow and listen to and and know personally, like that has been a gateway to, Hmm. to that sort of like insight into nature, I guess, or that reconnection or deconditioning that we kind of talked about. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder just from your perspective and where you sort of sit in this industry, you know, you're so deeply embedded. Does it seem like there's a huge groundswell like globally, or is it sort of a still a small movement? Yeah, it's a good question because um, my first reaction was it is a small movement. But what I realized is that the small movement is around the term and the concept of biomimicry. But when I think about other emerging movements like circular economy, or you know, passive design, or um, uh, decentralization, like those to me are all biomimetic principles. They just don't maybe have that word attached to them yet. And maybe it's, it's actually great in this conversation that I'm starting to connect that that's why biomimicry is so important to me is actually to honor where that lesson came from. A circular economy did not come from a human being being like, Oh, we need to do this. It's because we've seen in nature. And I mean, my grandpa, who's a farmer had a circular economy long before it was, popular today um, because he connected to like he was learning from the natural environment he was in. So um, yeah, as a term biomimicry is still, I think in its infancy, but as you know, a concept of learning from nature, I think we're seeing a lot more happen and and people are really connecting to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I hope so, I guess like even, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been a huge push recently for a lot of car companies to commit to electric cars in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, Like I would imagine that's sort of part of it in some ways, you know, it's driven by many different probably inspirations. Um, But there's also cars that like can run on vegetable oil and things like this. And it's just like, you know, I'm like, Whoa, that's crazy. But like, also why are we not doing that? Right. Yeah. Like it feels like there's so many technologies that already exist that really tie into the sort of biomimicry ethos that we just aren't putting into practice. Is that just yeah. capitalist like structures that are hard to break through for the most part? It's a great <laughs> question, Ryan. Like I honestly don't if I if I knew we would we'd be able to shift them. But yeah, why some technologies flourish and others don't? I yeah, there's I mean that's a I guess complexity or uncertainty that I I can't, I can't uh, answer. Okay. So you don't have all the answers to how to fix the no. world. We've established <laughs> no, that. That's what I thought we were yeah. getting today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's part two. Um, so, you know, I think like the video you've referenced a couple of times about the adaptive cycle is really interesting and it's like a great watch and listen for people. And I think, you know, in the video, you talk about it in relation to um, COVID in the last year, COVID-19 and sort of some of the, Uh, applications, I guess, in terms of uh, the parallels there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've not really dove super deep into this topic, but Zach Bush is somebody I've, I've definitely learned somewhat 
uh, from in terms of virome, in terms of this idea that there's, you know, just hundreds of billions of viruses in our atmosphere, in the sea, in the soil, in the air at all times. And our bodies are constantly sort of releasing and upgrading and evolving based on that, those viruses and the information in them. Um, so I wonder sort of if you can share a little bit more of your perspective in terms of that idea of the adaptive cycle in terms of the viruses and, and what you think is sort of going on. Hmm. Yeah, again, I don't feel like I'm, um, I'm, I'm obviously not an expert in this, but I'm, I just feel like one way you could look at it is as a small scale release. It's, it's just like, you know, in 2008, when we had that economic collapse, that was like an example of a small scale release. Well, it was a pretty big release. And I think COVID is now another example of a, of a big release and, and forcing us to move away from the state of conservation we're in and reorganize and adapt. Um, I think, you know, because our whole planet's going through a pretty dramatic transformation right now. In fact, I just read an article the other day saying that the earth is now spinning quicker because of the melting ice caps. Um, which I thought was mind bending, but that's to say like this whole ecosystem, this biome that we're a part of is, is changing and new things are going to pop up and things are going to happen quickly. And our bodies are just going to like move as fast as they can. Um, you know, so I think, I don't know much about, um, viruses, um, or COVID-19, but I do look at it and a lot of the work we do is looking at things at the systems level and trying to understand them through a natural lens. And this is very natural for this release to happen. Um, and then the whole system has to adjust to get back into equilibrium. And then if there's enough releases, it's, it takes a long time to get back into equilibrium. And um, that's, that's what all life wants to do is go to equilibrium and dissipate gradients. Mm -hmm. But when you throw in a new virus, it like creates a disruption and, you know, you could use that metaphor that we're a pretty good virus in many ecosystems. Right. Not in clear cut. And then what happens naturally is nature tries to go back to a sense of equilibrium unless we just keep putting energy into cutting it down. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you more, but that's kind of my systems approach to it is, is that there's these releases happening that force us to reorganize. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. It's just making me think about it in more depth too, because you know, these viruses have come along multiple times throughout humankind's mm -hmm. existence and done this sort of reorganization or shifting or evolution piece. And, it, you know, we fight so hard to uh, resist that in itself. Like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. be it like locking down, no one go outside or, you know, <laughs> I do feel like obviously vaccines can help human beings survive and stay healthy and, and, and can be a positive thing in, in certain moderation. But at the same time, everyone going and getting the vaccine is like a way that we're sort of resisting this like natural moment of release mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, just like you could say like the, the banking system was, is, you know, they're rail rallying against that sort of release and trying to fight on and hang on for their life in a way. Mm -hmm. And of course we would want to, um, mm. you know, like you said, we don't want that change. We don't want that chaos. The unknown is so terrifying, um, mm -hmm. as an individual, but even greater. So as sort of a collective whole. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting too. The one thing I've been getting more into is, is, um, the relationship between, 
um, environmental degradation and death and how the fear of death seems to drive um, inversely a lot of environmental degradation. It's I, I, You'd think sharing about climate change would inspire people to to make positive action, but there's a lot of psychological studies saying it does the exact opposite where people start to recognize their own mortality and become more selfish mm-hmm. um, and will become, you know, larger consumers. But I bring this back to this idea that, you know, a lot of what we do is just this fear of the unknown and the ultimate unknown is potentially death. Mm-hmm. It's like, we don't really know what's going to happen. And so we'll put in a ton of energy and a ton of momentum to try and stop that uncertainty, whether it's a banking system that's collapsing or a car industry that's collapsing right. or a society or community collapsing. And it's not, I'm not again, judging and saying there's a right and a wrong, but I just think there's a real interest um, from my perspective to see how death plays such a big role mm-hmm. in, in all of our actions and, and how that's connected to our fear of an unknown, a fear of uncertainty. Um, yeah. I think it's just an interesting kind of mental exercise. Yeah, no, it really is. Cause you know, we, thinking of death is really something that we think about for ourselves and our family. And, uh, but the idea of the death of a banking system or the death of a, you know, coal industry, you know, the death of anything we fight against and resist. And, Mm -hmm. and even if we know it's inevitable and there's no fighting it, then Mm -hmm. we just ignore it. You know, like the way that we've come to treat the elders in our community for the most part Mm -hmm. is like a very much like put that in the corner. I don't want to know about it, (laughs) you know, and like even to the more extreme in the last year with the sort of isolation, you know, like this death wave of death is coming over us all. And it's like the most vulnerable people, like get them away and hide them. (laughs) Like we don't want to see that death, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's tough because it is scary. And it is unknown. It is. And, you know, in my experience, it's been something that came up in the last year, like many people. And, you know, I chose to explore it through meditation and, Mm -hmm. you know, the use of DMT ceremony in a Mm -hmm. really safe setting. And it was very powerful because through something like that, you have to surrender to something Mm -hmm. so much greater than you that to hold you, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, in that exploration, I even realized like each day at the end of the day is like some form of that, you know, and it's like, we trust that our bodies are going to keep breathing and our heart's going to keep pumping for eight hours when we go to sleep, but we don't know if they will, you know, we like (laughs) go, our consciousness is like pretty much turned off, you know, for, to some degree. Mm -hmm. And we just are trusting that there's a greater wisdom in the universe and that sort of electric system within us is going to keep running, keep yeah. us alive, you know, and it's interesting to sort of start to approach each day with a little bit more awareness of that and be like, you know, there is something bigger than us and we can experience yeah. that each day just with the process of going to sleep. Totally. I was going to ask you from your DMT experience, did, did you find like the, the lessons have sustained like what you learned in the experience has kind of translated throughout your life or yeah since then? I think so you know there was it it really was this like feeling of falling back into these you know hands of the universe um mm. and even now as I go through like some stressful times in my life and I feel unsafe I I can go back to that moment and feel 
that feeling when I remind myself. And wow. it's, it's so calming to my whole sort of system, my nervous system, my, my mind, everything to just go back to that. I find that those experiences are so visceral and they hmm. stay at sort of within arm's reach. You know, if you sort of take care of yourself and stay sensitive and um, don't like sort of pollute your body to the point of disconnection. But yeah, it was, that's amazing. It was really, it was really potent and powerful. And, you know, I've had other experiences where I've, you know, asked my soul how many lifetimes it's lived and things like that. And so to have that sort of like, oh yeah, like this is just like another, you know, journey on the, on the sort of Mm. like eternal, you know, life that that brings a sense of ease with it. But I think like, you know, that's again, something that most people are not very sort of acquainted with. And, and it's terrifying to even think about exploring. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, a lot of people I talked to and including myself was, I had an, like an incredible fear of just looking at my own mortality Mm -hmm. and my own death. And I remember as a kid, you know, I remember the moment I realized I was going to die and it was heartbreaking. <laughs> like I just started bawling because I was like, I don't know what that means. But um, it's ex- it's an interesting part of my journey now. And like, I was very fortunate to a couple of weeks ago, my grandpa died and he was, he was 97. We buried him on his 97th birthday. So I feel lucky to have that much time. But together we, you know, planned his ceremony. We planned his death and, and he got to die exactly how he dreamed, which is, I know, not what a lot of people get, but um, just to be so present to a death again was like really a powerful ceremony. And, and that chance to be close to the, the ultimate unknown, mm-hmm. like who knows where that guy is now. Yeah. Um, but I got to spend those last moments with him and it was, yeah, it's really, it, it's really powerful to be present to that. Yeah, that is, uh, that's beautiful. And it's also funny, like the phrase you used of him, like having the death he dreamed of. <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah yeah um but yeah it is it is something i feel like i've never been like i've never gone hunting or anything like that but i do feel mm-hmm. like i com- compelled to do that at some point to have that experience where i'm actually killing the animal that i'm gonna eat and feed my family with and that sort of connection yeah. and respect and last spring actually like my my girlfriend's dog was had gotten old and it was time for her to go. So we had to like put her down and it's different than the mm. human being. But that was like a very intimate experience with death for me to have her totally. in, in our arms as we do that and not something I've experienced in my life. Um, mm. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people do have that. And, but it is really powerful to see and know and, and have that experience because it is, you know, it's just a part of what's going on all the time. Like, for the most part, all the food we're eating, all the plants, you know, have died, right. the animals have died and, you know, but we just are so distanced from that. Um, and it's interesting, like I know in a lot of studies where people who are really stressed about dying and they use like psilocybin or, or other yeah. medicines like that in terms of helping with their death process after they've gone through that, they're quite at peace with it, but it's like their family members that are like super stressed out about it because they have no relation to that experience. And, and that causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's because using the adaptive cycle again, it's that ultimate release Mm -hmm. and letting go and, and how that, 
like the mushrooms could help you release from this belief the fear of unknown and just accept and then go into that reorganization phase. Whereas like the families, you're right. I think struggle a lot when my mom, my mom died quite a while ago and she, um, that was the one thing in her journal I found afterwards she's most afraid of was how we were going to handle it. And, and I think that that was pretty, pretty interesting. And when somebody's prepared to die, um, you know, there's a, a way, I, yeah, there, I, there's another researcher, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he, he talks a lot about death and the importance of dying well um, and how that will help when you don't die well, you know, your family can feel that and they're not prepared to let you go. And then they have a heightened negative experience of that death. But when you can die well, it actually creates a calm that trickles down and then helps them die well. And then it's like a cascading effect that the grandchildren can die well. Um, and there's one woman actually in our community, the indigenous community that I've worked with that I'm a part of that, she had cancer. And I remember um, how accepting she was and how she kept saying, I'm going home. And she was so calm about it. And she created a sense of calm amongst all of us and like wrote us all personal emails. And um, it was amazing. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, when in her tradition, when somebody dies, they light a fire for four days as a, as a way of helping the spirit go to the spirit world. And I was lucky enough to, to be a firekeeper for that and, and be with her fire on her lawn as like, as her spirit kind of went away. And the experience of having somebody die so well was like just transformative for me to watch somebody be so okay, right from the get go and didn't try to fight it. Never, you know, never showed fear in, in, you know, in front of us and maybe she had moments, but um, it was really powerful to see somebody accept and see that she's going home. Um, that yeah really had a big impact on me yeah that sounds really beautiful and that makes a lot of sense with what you're saying in terms of that having a generational effect on how death is then sort of viewed and approached um you know and it also made me think of like you know there's there's stories where people have cancer and they're sort of it's far along and they're sort of given Mm -hmm. six to 12 months or something like that and then they just fully surrender to that and then start doing all the things that their like heart and soul has right. told them to do. And then in those next six months, like the cancer dissipates, you know, yeah, and goes away. And then they go on to live long, longer lives, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's such an interesting like meta version of that, that it's like the internal resistance to that release yeah. is causing the, a greater release to happen. And and then when you release and when you sort of like let go of that resistance, it allows the sort of homeostasis to take over in the human body in a way. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that that's again, just like such a metaphor for how human beings are on this, this planet in terms of like this unconscious fear is creating a hmm. bigger sickness. Yeah. 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 And the importance of just letting go. Yeah. I think, um, one other thing, uh, um, I read of a monk, he meditated constantly that there's a sword hanging over his head and I've used that in my own kind of meditative practice to realize like the importance of saying whatever it is that you need to say, 
um, to bring more love, as much love as you can, because you never know when that sword's going to drop. It's kind of a, an interesting way of looking at it, but you know, it keeps you present. And, and I, I, I do know that death is the ultimate motivator. So, um, I like to keep that present in terms of the work that I'm doing in the, the biomimicry stuff so that, you know, running a company has been, uh, I'm, you know, I've, I'm not, I'm new at it. And so there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety about whether it's the right thing, but if you can really ground in, in that meditation of death, it's like, well, let's just go because who knows when the sword's going to drop and let's do is let's create as much love and as much positive, uh, change as possible, uh, while we're here. Cause might as well. Yeah. And it's funny when it comes to that, I've experienced a lot of that, even just starting into the well and some other projects I've been mm-hmm. sort of thinking about, you know, the crazy fear of failing in terms of that, totally. sort of the death of the business and what that would mean yeah. for us. You know, what does it really mean for us? Not a whole lot, really. Like this <laughs> yeah. like company on paper doesn't exist anymore. Like the right. website's not on the internet anymore. <laughs> like, you know, totally. the the sort of upside to following our hearts and saying what's in them, you know, versus like mm. that sort of false death that we build so much fear around is, mm-hmm. um, or maybe it's not false, but it's not that uh, detrimental to pretty much anything. Yeah. How do you deal with those moments of kind of fear and uncertainty? I guess, you know, well, you know, we talked earlier about like, problem solving and looking to nature and you really have to like spend time in it, either looking at a certain um, like adhering or something like that. And like observing that one thing or, or observing nature overall and being inspired by it. I guess for me, a big part of that is doing that internally, you know, understanding Mm -hmm. what feelings are coming up, what emotions are there, how is that connected to my mind? And the more, I can feel those things come up and be like, oh, that's, I'm scared of that and be able to recognize that, then that is something yeah. that I need to do. You know, it's like yeah. the yeah. classic um, Joseph Campbell quote, like the the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. You know, I, I do really feel like that is like such a great, you know, thing to have uh, printed on your compass of life, I think, because... Right. It's true. You know, if something is, is scaring you and you feel scared of it and it's, there's probably unknown and chaos and all sorts of stuff, but you know, that's what, that's like the way that our sort of heart and soul tells us Mm -hmm. like, that's what you need to go into. Um, and so I try to listen to that as much as possible and do it. And and as I stay open, you know, if I'm listening to an audio audiobook or a podcast, there'll usually be some hints that come through there that reminds me like, hey, you know, you're supposed to go do this thing right now. <laughs> stop, yeah, stop yeah, like totally. messing around. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, the, sometimes I can act on that within a day and sometimes it takes months, but yeah, <laughs> just yeah. yeah, cultivating that awareness to the signs and then trying to act on it as much as possible, as soon as possible in a respectful yeah, way too. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a tough process. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a constant learning process for sure. And I, and I feel like it doesn't get all that, all that easier too, because each time you do that, I think what you're sort of overcoming in terms of that idea of fear is our ego. And that ego is trying to keep us small, keep yes. us safe, keep us, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
but each time you do that, your ego, I find, can sort of learn to trust you a little bit more. Like we learn to trust ourselves mm. a little bit more. So our capacity expands. And that just mm. allows the universe to bring us bigger challenges. It doesn't mean like, oh, now I'm yeah. like over all my fears. It's like, well, here's a bigger fear. Yeah. <laughs> and now that's your yeah. next challenge, you know? And it's just like this ongoing sort of journey um you just get it's like going through like the mini boss and then the next level boss and yeah yeah totally (laughs) like you you know just is a ongoing thing and so yeah that's kind of what i found (laughs) i think that's like it's a great way of looking at it and i often or i i thought too when you're saying that like knowing that you might be opened up to bigger challenges could actually like i'm thinking personally is like could keep me not even wanting to mm-hmm. conquer the lower challenge because it's like, it just means it's going to get scarier and scarier. But um, yeah, I think the, the relationship with the ego is, is so important. And then I think for me, it's what, what helps is just that connecting to death and, you know, the death of the ego. And um, when you're dead, you know, do you want to, that's actually how the company started. I didn't share that part, but I was riding home from, from work one day on my bike and I was like, should I do this? And then I had a vivid image of an old dude, my old self on my deathbed. And he said, I'd be disappointed if you didn't at least give it a shot. Yeah. And so that's, that was the inspiration. And, and for me, one of the things I get out of these challenges though, is it's the same thing as like whitewater paddling or some extreme sport. You get this endorphin rush, you get this connection to nature, to the universe that creates such a spiritual like high that um to me that's worth it and it's and it's so exciting and so when i think of those big challenges and i get bogged down i guess that's kind of a a, a cheat sheet for me is a cheat code is just think of the high that you could get if if it if you accomplish it or even yeah. the lesson you get if you failed at it yeah absolutely i think it's so powerful and you know somebody there's a lot of meditation teachers like joe dispenza where you know, overcoming those fears part of that is envisioning mm-hmm. yourself in that experience and how does it feel Right. right. And using that as like some inspiration or a resource to draw and to sort of push you through that fear. And, you know, like with white water rafting or any other sort of like extreme or endurance sports, I feel like, you know, we have these areas of our life where we can do it, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, first you swim in the ocean, then you, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you boogie board and then you ride a three foot wave. And then the next thing mm-hmm. you're riding a 20 foot wave, but then I could go home after going on like a 120 kilometer bike ride and like terrain I've never been. It was like crazy winds and then be scared to tell my girlfriend that I'm mad at her about something. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, there's so many ways in life or maybe it's like the job I'm scared to apply for. uh, And it's like, how do we bring ourselves wholly to each of these aspects? Um, Mm -hmm. And, and it's it's challenging and it can be a little bit overwhelming, but I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but just as we've been talking, it, it just made me think of like how crazy that our planet is this like just super complex um, mix of, you know, the ocean and the moon and the sun and... um all the different plants, all the different animals. And then there's just this one species that has this consciousness that allows us to defy it all. 
you know like there's yeah. i don't think there's any other creature that is defying <laughs> nature yeah and at the same time we can also harmonize with nature in a way that anything nothing else can you know like when i think about something like surfing and i'm not a surfer totally there's something just absolutely incredibly magical that a human being like thought i'm going to like take this little board out into the ocean which is being moved around by the sun and the moon and gravity and wind mm-hmm. and like just wait until like this ripple pops up out of nowhere and you just harmonize with that you know for yeah three or 30 seconds or whatever it is and it's like so magical and then you know we've done a lot of technological things that are you know in harmony with with what's possible too um but it's it's pretty wild to think about that it is yeah i think it's a, a wild thought experiment again because um first of all i don't know like what other species like i have you ever watched crows when they fly and they'll do this like barrel roll out of no. nowhere i remember watching them once they're just like flying towards my car and they would just like curl their wings and do this amazing barrel roll and i know crows are incredibly intelligent but it made me think like do other animals out there have experiences like that where they're dancing with nature like you think of um like a turkey vulture just catching you know the updraft of wind or um the way that they relate to their environment i i i think that that would be fascinating to explore is like the thinking of, of the animal kingdom and if they're you know what kind of thoughts they have like you know the octopus teacher yesterday learning about two-thirds of their cognition is in outside of their brain so their experience is so wild um to think that we're the smartest species, I'm, I'm aware enough to know that I don't think that that's the case, but to know that we have consciousness and to wonder if like other organisms have consciousness, I, you know, I don't know, but I think that that's, that's fascinating. And I love what you talked about, the harmonizing with nature, that we can get this sense of euphoric euphoria when we dance with nature and really let nature lead is, is how I see it. Um, but like what a gift though, that that's our species that we get to do that, that we get to have those experiences. We can destroy it. And yet at the same time, we can have this incredible, just like harmony and song when it's like, when it's done right, it's perfect, you know, and it feels amazing. And that's truly what, you know, our work is about is how do we harmonize in a more like, well, harmony is about symbiosis. It's about working together. It's about finding the right frequency and the vibration so that we are just making this beautiful song, but not to sound too much like a hippie that's kind of uh you know that's that's the stuff i want to live for is like riding that wave mm-hmm. and building that symbiotic you know um master plan mm-hmm. where both systems are thriving mm-hmm. uh that's yeah that's truly the legacy as i'm saying it that's the legacy i, I want to live is um creating some some beauty on this planet while we're here yeah I think so. And the thing that comes to mind with me, for me, when you're saying that is like the idea of co-creation. And I think like, yeah, like when we talked earlier is like this idea that we are just the engineers and we're in control, but for that, like symbiotic, harmonistic, um, you know, dance between nature and man, which is nature, you know, it needs to be this yeah. co-creation you know, we can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it in isolation. Really nothing can happen in isolation. Like, and you know, that's like 
that's probably one of the biggest like issues with our our world is isolation between literally everything yeah. from the micro to the macro and it's like you know just understanding that we're one and and when we're in co-creation like the sort of yeah. joy and efficiency of what can be created is uh almost ineffable i guess yeah a, f- a good friend of mine um he says it's like god gave us this rembrandt um meaning the world like the planet mm-hmm. and we're just like scribbling on it <laughs> but that there's like this, this there is also this opportunity to co-create to make the Rembrandt even like, you know, prettier and, and more beautiful where we can actually add to it. And I like that philosophy that like nature's not done and it's like, don't just leave it. There's no wild. It's like, how do we co-create together to make systems that we've never seen before, but that work for the, you know, the, the greatest diversity and the most species and organisms. That's what nature does. It constantly builds systems for the most diversity um, and the most organisms. So it's like, why can't we reintegrate ourselves back into that yeah. play, into that um, that painting, and start to to co-create something? Yeah, it's not done. The plan's not, you know, nature's not done. It's like a, it's a work in process. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a kind of cool way of thinking about. Yeah, it. Yeah, I like that as well because it's funny to think that we're sitting, that we're scribbling on like part of it and being like, look what we made. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, to, <laughs> look at this. Just children. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there is yeah. the potential to add to it and to create together and do something, you know, productive and efficient and, and, and healthy in a holistic yeah. sense. And yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's in, it's in collaboration. It's not in isolation that we can do that. Yeah, exactly. And then I think, again, that's what inspires me about biomimicry mm-hmm. is that it's a conscious emulation of nature. So, you know, you're, you're co-creating, recognizing that the source is not necessarily from you. It's, it's like, honestly, I think that nature is just a reflection of our own genius, like of, of God's kind of great design because, or whatever you want to call it, creator, God, your, your genius, your daemon, whatever it is. It's like, it's a reflection of brilliant ideas. Um, and we've just forgotten to tap into them mm-hmm. or we've forgotten to, to know how. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think we've just got distracted. I think, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and there's, there's parts of us and times where we, where we fall back into that and, and it's mm-hmm. beautiful. But I think like, you know, your question about the crow, like my impression is like most animals and, and plants as well do have a level of consciousness, but their yeah. consciousness is in that state of co-creation. And mm-hmm. like, you know, the, those birds are feeling the winds and changing their decisions based on, on that experience in the moment. Um, but there's sort of a, a more intuitive wisdom that mm-hmm. they listen to mm-hmm. rather than I think human beings have, we listen a little bit more to like a counterintuitive intuition a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, that sort of fear-based resistance towards being right. aligned with the flow of nature that it seems unique to us. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So to wrap it up, I know that you guys have another um, course uh, coming out pretty soon. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you can just share a little bit more about what's uh, sort of the outline of the course and maybe how often you're doing it for anybody who's interested in, in signing up. Yeah, so we're yeah we're just about to launch the second cohort. Um, we're going to do it April twenty second, which is Earth Day. Um, thought that'd be appropriate, mm-hmm. but it's a three module course. Um, do it at your own pace. 
there's eight videos. The videos are like five minutes and they're accompanied with a PDF. Um, the idea is we're going to walk through the mindset, the methods, and then the tools for how to practically apply biomimicry. Um, and they're all bite-sized so that we walk through the whole process together. Each week we get a tutorial where we can dive a little deeper as a cohort. Um, but yeah, you can take your time and get through those each lesson each week. Um, so yeah, I just like the idea of us all coming together. But um, it, So eight videos, eight lessons, eight tutorials, um, three modules. And last time we capped it at uh, 21 and had a really tight, nice little cohort and um, we're hoping to, you know, keep it small again to really give people that opportunity to connect in the community. I, th- I think that was one of the bigger um, elements was the ability to connect with other people in this in this c- container. Yeah, I can imagine so because I think like the curiosity and exchange of ideas would, coming out of that would be such a valuable part of the process. So there are there like group Zoom calls or something like that. That's a part of it. Exactly. Yeah. We had an international cohort like last, last year uh, or last cohort. Um, but what I've found and what I've known from teaching biomimicry in the past is that you get the most incredible ideas with the most diverse set of people. So it really doesn't matter what your background is. You don't have to be a designer or an engineer. Um, I found that the diversity is what makes this system thrive, like what makes this course thrive. So it's, it's super valuable to have different mindsets come together well that makes sense because that's how our gut health works and that's how the that's right. forests and animals and plants work so of course that that would make sense for that too yeah all right well i think that's a good spot to leave it um i know we're going to also share a little article together through through into the well and in in your company and uh again i'll share the adaptive cycle video in the show notes uh but yeah, thanks so much again for, for the work you're doing. It's definitely inspiring and, and for your time today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you, Ryan. It was really great. Yeah, likewise. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.